Welcome to a new edition of System Update. I'm Glenn Greenwald. This episode explores the rapidly growing platform of Joe Rogan and his podcast, and more specifically, and I think more interestingly, the reaction to that growing influence on the part of establishment liberals and journalists with mainstream news outlets, reaction that is becoming increasingly intense, increasingly vitriolic, and increasingly oppositional. A sign of how significant Rogan's platform has become is that several months ago, Sportify announced what is reported to be a deal in excess of $100 million paid to him for him to put his YouTube program exclusively on that streaming platform. Hello, everybody. I have an announcement. The podcast is moving to Spotify. Joe Rogan, one of the world's most popular podcasters, is making his show, The Joe Rogan Experience, a Spotify exclusive. This is huge industry-changing news. The show hasn't even been available on Spotify up until this point, and the company is reportedly spending potentially more than $100 million to bring it over. And there are all kinds of metrics one can cite to illustrate just how uniquely influential and popular Rogan's program has become. But just to give you one illustrative example, Edward Snowden, the source with whom I worked in 2013 and 2014 to report on the spying done by the NSA, appeared five days ago on Joe Rogan's YouTube program and already within five days more than 5 million people have watched that program. That's the second time Snowden appeared on Rogan's program. The first time was 10 months ago. And just on YouTube alone, never mind the other platforms where people listen to or watch the program, that episode where Snowden appeared was watched by more than 16 million people people, 16 million people, which might be a somewhat large audience for a Joe Rogan program, but not at all aberrational. And just to put that in perspective, the two most watched cable news programs are Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity's programs on Fox News. And on good nights, on good nights, they have an audience of 4 million people. So four times more people watched the Snowden interview with Joe Rogan just on YouTube, then watch the most highly rated shows on cable news. And that 15 or 16 million people audience is something that not even network news programs, which are watched by far more than cable news audiences, can command. So it's really impossible to overstate what a significant platform that has become, what a prominent, influential voice he has become in the political and cultural landscape of the United States. And what I think makes him even more in that his audience is clearly ideologically diverse and very difficult to pigeonhole. There was recently a Pew study that was released within the last couple of weeks that asked Americans, what, what is your number one source of news? And for people who chose Fox News as their number one source of news, 93% of them identified as being Republican. And for MSNBC, it was very similar. For people who chose that network as the number one source of news, 95% of people identified as being Democrats. And perhaps most surprisingly of all, but most significantly of all, for people who identified the New York Times as their main source of news, 91% of them 
said that they were Democrats. You see how polarized and ideologically insular media outlets are becoming really preaching to the choir on purpose as their profit model when Rogan's audience is becoming more ideologically diverse than ever. Now, for several years as Rogan's platform grew, I wasn't ever really watching the program. And so what I knew about it was based on what people in the media were claiming. And what I was typically hearing was that Rogan's program and Rogan himself were essentially a kind of alt-right or far-right program as evidenced by the fact that he did often has and still continues to have guests who are who reside on the far right end of the spectrum, whether it's people like Ben Shapiro or uh, even people further to the right than he. And I didn't spend much time thinking about it or paying attention to it. It wasn't a program that I watched, but it was something in the ether that I was aware of. And I was aware of those claims that were people that people were making. And yet when I started to watch the show, not religiously or on a daily basis, but at least in an attempt to understand what the phenomenon really was, I realized, as is so often the case, how misleading and false the conventional wisdom about his program really was. It is true that he does have people who are far to the right of what is typically aired on mainstream news audiences, but it's also true that he often speaks to people on the left or even to people who are not very ideologically identifiable and not being ideologically identifiable is ultimately what I realized is the best way to think about Joe Rogan. He's sort of a person who tries to uh, be a vessel for the voice of ordinary Americans and maybe doesn't even try actually is he's curious about how people think he's willing to talk to or engage with almost anyone in an attempt to understand whether there's validity to their underlying thought process or is perfectly willing to confront people when he thinks that they're saying things that are untrue. And I think that for a lot of people who pay attention to politics, Joe Rogan first appeared on their radar screens, which is kind of odd already. The fact that he's speaking to millions and millions of people yet only appeared on people's radar screens recently during the 2020 primary when he said that the candidate that he liked the most was Tulsi Gabbard, followed by saying that the candidate that he liked the most was Bernie Sanders. And then the controversy that arose was when Bernie Sanders took that comment that he was willing to support Bernie Sanders and touted it in an endorsement. And Bernie Sanders' act of touting Joe Rogan's endorsement, or at least his quasi-endorsement, saying that he really liked Bernie Sanders, that he was willing to vote for him uh, against all the other candidates, became a controversy because Democratic partisans and people in the media said that it was almost immoral or an enormous mistake for the Sanders campaign to tout the endorsement of somebody so anathema to liberal values, somebody so repellent, as Joe Rogan, there were reports that even Bernie's supporters like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were angered and by and offended about the fact that the Sanders campaign touted his endorsement. Now, why would that be? In the past couple of months, the Biden campaign has touted the endorsement of people who clearly are far worse than Rogan, no matter how critical you are of him and have done much more harm in the world than he ever could dream of doing, including people like Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire mayor of New York City who spoke at the 
Republican National Committee uh, convention in 2004 to endorse George Bush and Dick Cheney in the middle of the war on terror and the Iraq war and who presided over things like stop and frisk, a clearly aggressively racist policy. The Biden campaign openly embraced Michael Bloomberg and thanked him for his endorsement. And even more controversially, the Biden campaign just recently touted and happily accepted the endorsement of former Republican Michigan Governor Rick Snyder, who presided over and is widely believed validly to be the culprit in the case of Flint, Michigan, and its largely African-American population not having clean, healthy drinking water for years. So why is it okay in the Democratic mind or in the establishment liberal mentality to tout the endorsement of people like Rick Snyder or Michael Bloomberg or the whole range of neocons that have become the Lincoln Project and leading anti-Trump voices like Bill Kristol and David Frum and Rick Wilson, but not accept the endorsement of someone like Joe Rogan. What makes that question even more interesting and even more confounding is that by every metric, Joe Rogan is a liberal. He supports redistributive economic policies and greater taxes on the rich and higher social spending. He is adamantly pro-choice in favor of gay rights and even in favor of full legal protections for trans people, often the issue most cited to claim that he should be off limits. There are certainly controversial things that he's done on his show for hours when you broadcast, you're going to do controversial things. He has aired the question of whether trans women ought to be able to compete in professional female athletics, whether that's fair for people who go through puberty and live their whole life as men biologically to then transition as women and be able to compete against women, something the medical field and even feminist icons and defenders of LGBT rights like Martina Navratilova have asked questions that society is debating. He's questioned whether children are being misdiagnosed with gender dysphoria or are being encouraged by the society to identify as trans, even if they're not. Something that, given that it's children we're talking about, we all have the responsibility to ask whether they're sometimes being misdiagnosed or otherwise led to make permanent choices about their lives that perhaps aren't necessarily the right ones for them or they're not emotionally and psychologically equipped to make at such a young age. Just asking those questions has rendered him radioactive, not just among liberals, but even among Sportify employees who recently complained to the CEO and demanded that some of those shows, which run afoul of liberal orthodoxies, not be part of the Sportify platform. But it's a really interesting dynamic to explore why it is that someone who has almost across the board liberal political views and despite the deviations from liberal orthodoxies and even some of the offensive things he said has done far fewer offensive acts and has far fewer offensive positions than people readily welcomed in liberal and democratic circles why is there such aggression and contempt for him on the part of a media class that has a far smaller audience than he, on the part of a political liberal establishment that doesn't identify with him culturally, but that nonetheless has a great deal in common with him politically. 
And I think it's really worth asking, not just because Joe Rogan is an important political force and dynamic to understand, though that is true, but also because the reaction says so much about how establishment liberalism functions, what priorities it has and doesn't have, and how the establishment media looks at people who are their competitors but not part of their club in terms of credentials or culture or behavior or etiquette or simply just not part of their club for whatever reason. Joining me now to help explore this conundrum surrounding Joe Rogan and the relationship of liberals and the media class to him is a special guest, Sean Mesrobian, who is the author of what became a fairly viral thread on Twitter roughly a month ago, exploring these issues surrounding how Joe Rogan is being discussed in mainstream circles. He's also formerly a digital strategist for the Obama 2008 presidential campaign. He's currently the co-host of an outstanding YouTube show called Back Channel, and he is a writer and commentator on a variety of political and cultural issues based in San Francisco. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm happy to. So let's begin by talking about this kind of essay that you wrote online um, in, in, a, in a series of tweets in which you analyze why it is that liberals have such a difficult time processing how to think about Joe Rogan and in particular seem to have settled on something ranging between animosity and just full-on um, contempt. And one of the reasons you observed that you found that so uh, uh, kind of confounding was that, according to you, Joe Rogan himself, despite common perceptions among those groups, is clearly, and in almost every meaningful respect, a liberal politically. Why do you say that? What is it that you you mean when you say that Joe Rogan is a clearly a liberal politically? Yeah. So, you know, one thing it might help to explain why, like, I even wrote this thing. Right. Because, like, when you asked me to talk about this, I could hardly even remember why I decided it was important to talk about Joe Rogan at the end. I think it was like at the end of June. Um, I mean, we're, you know, going in like these. I guess three month cycles now of Joe Rogan outrage, like every three months or something, there's a reason liberals like lose their minds about Joe Rogan. Um, you know, the big one was like Bernie right back in, I think, in the winter. After his recent ascent in the polls, the media have pumped up their scrutiny of presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, especially after the senator received a tentative endorsement last week from Joe Rogan, the incredibly popular, incredibly divisive podcast host and comedian. Him as a human being, when I was hanging out with him, and yeah. I, I believe in him. I like him. I like him a lot. The Sanders campaign quickly repackaged the clip into an official ad, causing an uproar on social media which splintered online politicos into four camps. Those with no knowledge of Joe Rogan's media empire, those celebrating the prospect of converting some of the tens of millions in his audience into Sanders supporters, those expressing disgust that a progressive candidate would welcome praise from a man with some problematic views and pronouncements. And 
Fox News. Giddy over more left-wing infighting. Joe Rogan, he has the most popular podcast in the country, in the world by some measures. Wow. Like an amazing endorsement. And they're, le- they're left freaked out. They said, well, he's a racist, he's a bigot. The, the human rights campaign right. demanded that Sanders disavow Joe Rogan's endorsement. But I couldn't even remember why, what it was in June. And then, so I looked it up and I realized it was an Alyssa Milano tweet, of all things. Um, she tweeted, and I remember I just woke up one day and there was a tweet from Alyssa and Milano. And for people who don't know, just, Alyssa Milano... Um, in addition to being one of the most important thinkers about politics in the United <laughs> States today, was formerly an actress who starred in sitcoms such as Who's the Boss and then Charmed as well. Right. And on top of that, she's like sort of like the queen bee of like the online liberal resistance right now. Right. I mean, I'm I'm hard pressed to think of other kind of matriarchal figures of this of this online liberal resistance movement who are kind of top her right so um and the tweet to me was just absolutely hilarious it was uh we live in a world where joe rogan's podcast has tripled the listeners as mine dear god okay and it was an all caps tweet and it was hilarious to me for two reasons one is just the idea that she assumes that she's just obviously entitled to have the same audience as Joe Rogan, right? Like that. It's just a crazy thing that Joe Rogan, who himself is just he's just a a phenomenon in terms of this podcast medium. Like he's he's done an amazing thing here. Uh, He's built an amazing audience. He's clearly proven um, that he's able to, like, fill this market niche. And like why, of all people, Alyssa Milano should have the same um, the same kind of reach and the same audience, especially when I'm pretty sure she's I mean, I doubt she's been doing her podcast for more than a few years, right? Joe Rogan has been doing this since like at least 2010, probably well, I, maybe I don't even think earlier it, first than of all, that. I don't, I don't even think anyone knew she had a podcast. Well, that's exactly with, right. Right. That's exactly. And I saw who. I don't think anyone even knows when it began. It could be like a week old. It could be a decade old. I don't think anyone knows because I've right. never heard anybody talk about it or <laughs> anyone. I so, don't know anyone who's ever listened to it, but. Um, Yeah, it was interesting because she was essentially saying that the metric for understanding whether the world is just or not is the size of her podcast audience relative to Joe Rogan. Right. And this was fantastic marketing for her, obviously, because like this is probably the most reach she's ever gotten for telling people she has a podcast. Right. So, I mean, it was clever in that regard. But like the other reason it was so funny and weird to me is that like it just struck me then that like why are they so obsessed with Joe Rogan as like the opposition? Like, how is Joe Rogan the opposite of Alyssa Milano? Like, how does that even, you know, like, where where does this even come from? Right. And so like this, you know, I've been listening to the podcast for like, you know, maybe a decade now. Um, And so like when I see people like talk about it, and I've also been working in like, you know, democratic liberal politics too. And so You know, whenever people talk about Joe Rogan, it's always people who like have clearly never actually listened to the program. And that's why this whole kind of this hysteria about him works so well is because it's always targeted at people who are also the kind of people that will never actually listen. Right. Say your logo 
is the worst thing in the world for people who are like trying to be like politically serious and you know they're worried about the <laughs> national security advisor condemning because like this bald guy with this maniacal grin and like the third eye on his forehead and i'm like oh man that show you know <laughs> that that doesn't look good but it's actually like when you watch you know when when you watch what you're doing it's, it's great stuff man it's great but that first impression like i <laughs> this almost didn't happen but everybody who has talked to you you know everybody who watches your show i think they get a very different impression than how you're painting but like when i saw this tweet i started finally just thinking to myself okay what is going on here like why do they think he's the opposition because like if they actually knew something about his politics and like with podcasts you know they're a very intimate medium and you eventually if you listen to them a lot you start to really know a lot about people and the way their brain works and the way they're you know, their thinking works, right? I mean, it's like reading someone's op-ed every week, but 10 times more intimate than that. And the thing you'll know about Joe is that he's completely liberal in his politics. Like he's absolutely liberal. He like almost down the line, right? So, I mean, he's pro-choice, he's pro-gay marriage. Um, and it goes, and now a lot of times people will think, oh, well, that just means he's a libertarian, but that's not true at all. He's also down the line uh, in terms of like economic redistribute redistributive policies, right? So like social welfare policies, expand healthcare. I think he's said he's down with Medicare for all, um, you know, raise taxes. And then like he even like in some areas outflanks, I would say, traditional mainstream liberals or at least the establishment of the Democratic Party, because he's um, he's pretty anti-interventionist. He's pretty anti-war, um, which explains why he had such an affinity with Tulsi for a while, um, you know, and that I think would outflank, you know, e at least the Democratic establishment. Right. Um, and so to me, it was just so funny thinking about that. And then it sort of clicked to me that it's not that they disagree with what he or it's not that he disagrees with them on beliefs. It's that he's just not like them. Right. And that's well, what so let me let me let's so let me stop you there, because that, that is the yeah. crux of. Right. Um, your thesis, and I find it, you know, I found I found it personally to be a very novel insight and also an extremely important one. But before we delve into that, let's explore this issue a little bit further, because I think for a lot of people, the the first time that a controversy surrounding Joe Rogan really made the radar of a lot of politically engaged people. I think that's one of the interesting you know, kind of uh, dynamics here, right, is that he has this massive audience, way bigger, way bigger than any, say, primetime cable news host, let alone, you know, morning cable. And yet, if you were to pay attention only to political Twitter, people who are very engaged in politics, they obsess on people like Anderson Cooper or Don Lemon or Morning Joe or Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow. And Joe Rogan has a way bigger audience than all of those people. In fact, triple or quadruple or even more. Um, and yet he's barely ever discussed because for people who are very politically engaged, he's almost not even on the radar. But the first time that I think he really became on the radar of very politically engaged people was in the uh, 2020 Democratic primary, I think earlier this year, when he said... Um, essentially that among the candidates that he really likes and would probably vote for was Bernie Sanders. And it was kind of odd for somebody who's been 
you know, for years now depicted as this kind of alt-right Nazi to pick like the furthest, most left-wing socialist candidate um, who really, you know, obviously, as you say, is sort of defined by redistributive economics and in 2020 by left-wing cultural positions as well. Um, and the controversy became that the Sanders campaign took that statement and touted it and heralded it. And it became a huge controversy. Bernie Sanders was mercilessly attacked, not just by the Democratic establishment and people like Alyssa Milano, but even some Sanders supporters like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was reportedly very angry about it. And yet now you have the worst ghouls on the planet openly embracing the Biden campaign and the Biden campaign touting those endorsements, like the neocons, obviously, with huge amounts of blood on their hand. But recently, Rick Snyder, the Republican governor of Michigan, who was the prime villain of the reason why African-Americans in Flint didn't have clean water for years and was just sociopathically indifferent to it to the point where it almost seems like liberals view Joe Rogan, not just as not a liberal, which is weird enough, but as someone who is so deeply anathema to what their values are and who they are in a way that say the governor of, of Michigan, Rick Snyder or Bill Crystal or David Frum or any of those Bush Cheney operatives who are just conservative aren't. How is what what explains that? You know, I think there, there's two ways to explain it. And I think they're both pretty valid and they both probably fit, feed into each other. I mean, one of them has to be just naked opportunism of you know, the Democratic primary, right, and Bernie, and people just hating Bernie. And so anything associated with Bernie had to be destroyed, right? Um, I think that's a simplistic explanation, though. I think it goes probably a little deeper than that. Um, I think- right, because just, what, I think you're right, but like, obviously, there's no more Bernie candidacy, and Bernie supporting Biden, and Bernie's integrated into the Democratic establishment, and yet this contempt for- Joe Rogan persists, right? So I agree that's part of it, but there's clearly more to it than that. Right. The thing about Rogan is that, and you know, if there was one thing I could sort of change about how I initially wrote this is that, you know, I said that Joe Rogan is, you know, politically liberal, right, through and through, but he's sort of culturally conservative. Now, the way I would tweak that a little bit, since we're actually like talking and not trying to fit words into, you know, 240 characters, I'd say it's not so much that the things he does are culturally conservative, but they are culturally not liberal, right? And it's it's not just that they're things that people who are culturally liberal don't do, but they're also things that, like, they sort of don't do in order to signal that they are culturally liberal, right? So, I mean, these are things like telling lewd jokes, um, hunting, uh, being into fighting sports, uh, just being politically incorrect in general, right? I mean, these are things that, you know, kind of signal to people that you're not really in the... Um, you know, it's kind of a caricature, but you're not in that New Yorker tote bag scene, right? Like that's you're not you're not sort of in this enlightened professional class where we where they sort of adopt a whole different set of values. And so I think what that does is shed light on the fact that there is really a divide between these two concepts of being politically liberal and being culturally liberal. Uh, being politically liberal is a very low barrier to entry. I mean, it's very simple. Like it's it's about it's about agreeing with, you know, the litany of liberal beliefs. Now, it doesn't mean you have to agree with the entire litany, but 
it's it's about just saying I am a pro-choice person. I support gay marriage. I support expanding health care to all, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I mean, it's very easy. Right. Like to I would be in declare favor of increasing taxes on corporations and the rich in order to provide more services and opportunities for poor people, all things that Joe Rogan agrees with that we always think about politics being about. Right. Right. And and the thing about this is that it's it not only is it sort of a, a very simple, straightforward proposition, but it has wide distribution in terms of just demographics, in terms of geography. I mean, this idea that the country is split in this, you know, you've got the coasts here and then everyone in the middle and everyone who agrees with this issue is on this side and then everyone who agrees. On, it's not how it works. I mean, there are tons of people who at least pick off some of these things, right? They pick off some of these issues. It's complicated. Um, when it comes to cultural liberalism, that's a different story. I mean, cultural liberalism really is sort of confined to certain demographics, socioeconomics, uh, and geography too, especially. Um, it's really, I mean, it, the best way usually you can define it is just through education level, right? People who uh, have not just college degrees, but graduate degrees, usually advanced degrees. Um, and it's a lot about how you make your money, right? Do you make your money by producing knowledge? As I said before, it's like that. It's a caricature, of course, but, you know, the New Yorker tote bag scene, people who are, you know, MSNBC junkies, that sort of thing, right? Um, and so it's really about, like, separating out these two things and understanding that, um, you know, there's a certain class of people who, you know, cultural liberals um, really want to make sure these lines are not really blurred. Like it, there's a lot of investment in making sure that political liberalism and cultural liberalism are very, very tightly intertwined because that's sort of a power center for them, right? Like a cultural liberalism, it's not like being a cultural liberal ha has nothing to do with the politics. In fact, it has a ton of to do to do with the politics because having control of the culture allows you to communicate and really control the politics. I mean, culture is how we talk about politics. Uh, culture is how we transmit ideas. Culture is how we tell people who they should um, who they should be congregating with, who they should be associating with, right? And so when you get someone like Joe Rogan in, you're sort of scrambling that in a way that is really disconcer disconcerting to cultural liberals and their source of power because um, when you keep these two things sort of intertwined together, it's a very neat and simple. I mean, it's a simple business model from a media standpoint in general. Right. Um, you want people to just pick between MSNBC and Fox. Right. You want people to pick between Sean Hannity or Maddow. Right. Um, but when you scramble it, what you're doing is you're really doing two things. What you're doing is, first of all, it's a lot harder to wage a culture war. Right. Um, the culture war really relies on people believing that those people who are different than you, for whatever reason, maybe they hunt, they're into the, you know, they watch UFC, they watch bloody sports, um, they uh, they tell bad jokes, they don't they don't declare their pronouns when they walk into a room and you know do a land declaration. Um, those types of people uh, are also out to get you. They don't believe in what you believe in. They want a different country than you want, right? Um, they want to take away your rights. They want you to suffer, right? Like that's what the culture war really relies on is making that connection between different person wants to hurt you. What what 
Joe Rogan and someone like him does is it kind of scrambles that, right? Like it, it decouples these two things. It decouples the culture from the politics and it sort of says, well, hey, maybe that's not so simple. Maybe the people who are into different things or just didn't grow up the way you grew up, maybe there's a dialogue here to have. Maybe there's a cross-pollination we can have, right? And so when you do that, it all of a sudden, A, makes it really hard to wage a culture war, and B, it, it really erodes the authority of people who make their entire careers waging the culture war, right? Because all of a sudden, you know, it, it, listen, if this was 15 years ago or 20 years ago, Joe Rogan could be completely ignored because he'd have no reach, right? Like he'd be doing, he'd be operating on some kind of medium well, he, where he was, there's he was no... The, he was the host of Fear Factor, right? Like right, exactly that. Exactly. He was... Right. Um, but l l let me just let me just kind of dig a little bit deeper on this distinction you're drawing between political liberalism and cultural liberalism, because I know for a long time the way we used to think about that dichotomy was political to be a political liberal meant that you favored some kind of soft socialism or greater sp sp uh, spending on social programs like. Uh, unemployment benefits and a minimum wage and Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid than conservatives did. Also that you had a more kind of liberal view. You were more dovish or anti-war on foreign policy. And so we were talking about that as being politics. And we were talking about the culture war or cultural liberalism. We were, we would talk about it as being um, the kind of cultural political debates we have over abortion and, and gay rights and trans rights. So in the past, we were to say this person is politically liberal, but culturally conservative. What we would basically mean is kind of like, say, you know, the kind of prototypical union worker in the industry, in the Rust Belt or in the industrial swing states who, you know, kind of wants a, who opposes globalistic trade policies, hates their corporate boss, wants more labor protections, doesn't really favor war, but really isn't very supportive of or might actually be actively opposed on religious or moral grounds to the liberal social agenda of gay rights and abortion. That's how always this polarization worked. The point that you are making, though, is that that's not really what cultural liberalism means anymore. In fact, you specifically said when I say Joe Rogan is culturally conservative, I don't mean on the political issues that are part of the culture war because, as you pointed out, he favors gay rights. He's pro-choice completely, not ambivalently. Um, so one of the points that you made was that what this shows, this this kind of contempt for Joe Rogan, notwithstanding his good politics, not his perfect politics, but his good politics from a liberal perspective, better than a lot of political figures that liberals like, more liberal, more left than a lot of them that they like, is that liberals prioritize culture over politics, by which you don't mean they think it's more important to combat homophobia and misogyny and racism than it than than class issues or foreign policy you mean something different by that right. what is it that you mean by that right what i mean specifically is that they prioritize pushing this idea that this specific tribe of people um there are different ways to cut it we can talk about them as a professional class that tends to inhabit metropolitan areas who people who have graduate degrees 
um, or at least are college educated, but often graduate degrees, advanced degrees, um, people who read certain types of, you know, read certain uh, liberal publications, who all watch the same shows. I mean, there's great, you know, there's a, a just tremendous homogeneity now in, in American culture, right? Uh, it's the idea that these are the types of people who should be both in charge of talking about le liberal left politics and who should really be in charge of the country in general. There are people who right now have cultural hegemony in this country, right? Um, and it's the idea that these people are sort of the, these are the people who embody what should be American morality right now, right? These are the people who embody what that is and should hold the cultural level levers of power in the country and who should have the power to be speaking on, on uh, the important topics of the day. And so that's what sort is, of what I mean what, by the culture. What, what does Joe Rogan lack on that list of attributes that people think define those who should be exerting influence and power over our discourse and politics. Well, I think what he lacks is, I mean, the, the most important thing he lacks is the um, willingness to exclude everyone else from the debate who isn't a part of that culture. I mean, I think that's probably the primary thing that enrages them is that he, I mean, it, one, one of the reasons why his show is so popular is that it's a really powerful cross-pollination of ideas, of different fields, of different industries, people from all these different walks of life. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a great reflection of internet culture. You know, one of the reasons why the show is so popular is that it kind of operates on internet time, right? As opposed to, you know, cable news that is kind of really slow to pick up on things, probably because of its older demographic, whereas Joe Rogan is able to seize on something that appeared on a message board yesterday, right? And I mean, even if you watch his show, um, they're able to fact that fat check themselves in real time, right? He's got his sidekick there, Jamie, who pulls something up to verify whether what Joe read, what Joe just said is totally full of shit. I mean, that's not something you're going to see Chris Hayes do or Sean Hannity do, right? Like, that's just not the way it works. Everyone's online today. I mean, the entire country is essentially getting email and Facebook and all that jazz. Like, why bother doing it in this particular medium that has an inherent time constraint? Well, you're right. I mean, the internet has revolutionized politics, uh, and in many ways, good ways. We use our social media, our email list, which is very large. We Every day we're sending out stuff, and other candidates are doing it the same way. But television still has a very important role to be playing. Um, and so probably it's it, it's partly that, uh, and it's and it's partly, you know, his his willingness to transgress on issues that are considered sacred, right? Not necessarily, obviously the big one nowadays is the trans issue, the transgenderism issue. He's willing to talk about that and he's willing to bring in um, perspectives on it that right now liberals are just have zero, zero tolerance for. Um, and so I so, think- So, so, so let, me, let, me, let me, let's stop there for a second. So. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm. I want to kind of present what I think would be the best or strongest case that a liberal would make for why Joe Rogan ought to be regarded, certainly not as an ally and even as an enemy. And one is the one that you just put your finger on. So this week there was a report in Vice that employees of Sportify, which is the platform that essentially just paid Joe Rogan in excess of $100 million 
for his show exclusively to appear there are upset um and it came from how they what they described themselves as being lgbtqai plus employees and allies so not just the lgbtqai plus employees but also their allies are upset because in particular he has had on his show number one an author who has argued that there are times when young people are um, influenced to believe that they have gender dysphoria and to even begin irreversible transitions when in fact they don't have gender dysphoria because of the culture that is encouraging them to think that. To que- in other words, questioning whether young people are being misdiagnosed with gender dysphoria who don't in fact have it. And there are definitely people who have said that they have been, that they've gone through that process only to realize that that wasn't their issue. Um, So that was one of the problems is just airing an author who did research and science um, who said that uh, to some extent people are being misdiagnosed. And then I guess the other one was him being an MMA fan, a fighting fan, as you alluded to earlier, questioning whether it's fair to allow uh, trans women who live their lives uh, as biological men who went through puberty as biological men who developed muscle mass and hormones and um, the entire physiology of a man to then transition and compete with cis women, something that people like Martina Navratilova, who's been a longtime uh, advocate for trans people, have asked as well. And that essentially this demonstrates his willingness not just to air these views, but to even kind of wonder them himself, suggests that he's transphobic, which is a form of bigotry, and we ought not to have any kind of alliance with or support for people who are bigots. That's one of the cases that is made against Joe Rogan. Why isn't that valid? So, I mean, it goes to the point that I, that the question you just asked me and the point that I made, which is that, you know, what makes what makes it what makes Joe Rogan seen as not an ally? And, you know, what makes him come across as not an ally is that he is not actively engaged in the culture war. Right. I mean, what's so crucial to people who are actually actively engaged in liberal culture war is that you have to be actively seen as saying, you know, this is our line and anyone who does not um, hue to this line is the enemy, right? And if you're not a part, if you're not a part of the solution, you're a part of the problem, essentially. And so when Joe Rogan, someone like Joe Rogan comes along and says, hey, there are some interesting issues here. Hey, let's talk about this. Hey, there are some certain scientific studies that immediately raises all the alarms in people's heads saying that, uh oh, this is not one of us. This is not one of the allies, right? Like this isn't someone who is going to be doing the work that we define ourselves by, the work of advancing the culture war, right? And if you're not advancing the culture war, then you're as good as the enemy, if not the enemy, right? Which is ironic, right? Because like George George Bush's 9-11 formulation that liberals incessantly, not just mocked, but were, were, were very alarmed by, was that, you know, every country has a choice. You're with us or you're with the terrorists. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. If you're not actively supporting what we're doing, we're going to regard you as an ally of the terrorists or even one of the terrorists. And that means that, for example, in the culture war, 
you become the enemy not merely by advocating against trans rights, but questioning the premises, the science behind the implications of these very profound social changes that a lot of people are advocating. Right. And and that's what you saw from this Vice article, right? Um, it was actually a perfect case study. I mean, first of all, the headline said Joe Rogan's transphobic episode or something like that, or you transphobic Joe Rogan, you know, it, it clearly editorialized before you even, you didn't, I mean, you didn't even have to read the article, right? Like you, you just read the headline and you know exactly what the article is saying. But beyond that, it also completely sidestepped the debate as we're just saying now, right? This episode that they're talking about that that's causing all the drama internally in Spotify, if you watch it, there's two important things to know about it. First of all, before anything happened, and again, the reason why this stuff works so well is because no one actually listens to the episodes who cares involved in this in this war, right? In these battles because they're or three they hours see, like, or they see and, like one minute chosen snippets deliberately yeah, selected to right. cast it in the worst right. possible light. Right. Right. Exactly. But so he starts off right off the bat and he's and he says, this episode is not about adults. Right. This is not about trans adults. We completely believe in trans adult rights. We believe in their identities. We are completely supportive of them. Um, I, Joe Rogan, am completely a supporter of trans adults. Right. So that's important to set aside. Um, because right off the bat, you know that he's not talking about trans, the idea of transgenderism in general, obviously, right? You can't have I, a problem I've heard with him transgenderism say before, generally. I've heard him say before, not only do I fully support the complete range and panoply of robust equal legal rights for trans people, and not only do I believe that they have the absolute right to live their lives with full and complete dignity and liberty— which is consistent with his overall philosophy. I've heard him say, I have nothing but love in my heart for trans people. In fact, admiration for people who are willing to defy societal convention to be who they are. So it's almost like even on the question of trans issues, from a liberal perspective, he's way ahead of the vast majority of where the population is in terms of how he talks about it. Um... So you're right. He he carves out this kind of, you know, um, territory that he's saying I'm not questioning the rights fully of trans adults to live a complete and full life filled with dignity and love. Um, so what is it that that became problematic? So what became problematic is that, you know, the rest of the show is devoted to the issue of children who you know, children, teenagers, um, people going through adolescence who come across the idea of transgenderism and think that maybe transgenderism has some kind of answers for what may be the natural kind of patterns and challenges that children go through in young age, um, you know, normally. And also, you know, in these days, we're suffering through a mental health crisis, right? One that probably even preceded um, COVID, but has just been amped up greatly during COVID, right? But generally, the the idea and the author of the book, who I will say, you know, the, the, the author of the book, the title was a little bit sensationalist. And I think that's probably driving a little bit, you know, it's something like they're coming for our daughters or something like that, which, you know, listen, I if I was advising someone to write a book that you want well received broadly, you might 
do a better job with the title. But and, and, and I, that's not and that's not a book we'll written say, by Joe. It's not a book written by Joe Rogan. It's a book written no, by an author guess, that Joe Rogan interviewed, right. not always favorably. Right. right? He interrogated that person on a lot of those premises. Exactly. And he did. And he did do a good job of actually kind of talking about the cover and saying, well, why did you go with this cover? And I mean, it was he, he does his job on that end, actually. Right. Um, but more importantly, this entire episode was talking about whether there's an issue with kids that, you know, kind of exploring transgenderism and actually moving forward with it when maybe it's not it. Maybe it's sort of a product of just a tumultuous adolescence and maybe allowing children to do this and engage in this is maybe not the right move. Essentially saying maybe these children who think they're trans aren't actually trans and maybe we should be engaging the science, engaging um, engaging the experts on this issue to kind of sort this out so that, you know, we're not we're not kind of sending people on this path that will sort of, you know, uproot their lives and things that they'll have to undo later on and just causing more trauma into adulthood, right? It's a way to argue against that, which is to say, well, no, we've talked to the experts and the experts say this isn't a widespread issue. Or when we interrogate these children who think they might be trans, there are real reasons why they think they are. Or, you know, look into that literature, bring it up, bring the experts in and actually engage this debate. But of course, that's not what they're in for, right? Like this, that's not what this is about. This is about immediately kind of shutting down the debate and saying, okay, you're on the other, you're not, you're not advancing the, the cause, the trans cause and the broader culture cause. So you're clearly part of the problem. You're not being an ally, right? And that's why this word ally is has become so important in this broader kind of critical theory, culture war um, dynamic is because this idea of ally, it's not just it's not a it's not just an affirmational kind of identity of being an ally, but it's a negational identity, right? What it's saying is that if you're an ally, it means you're actually part of this. Right. You're not you're not someone who is just letting it happen or working against us. If you're not an ally, it's not just that you're being lazy. They're not trying to, you know, when they say you're not an ally, what they're saying is that you're the enemy. Right. Yeah, You know, Again, there's, there's, the there's several there's there's a couple things really interesting to me about that, which is number one, obviously part of my formative experience in being politically engaged was being part of the gay rights movement in the late 80s or even the mid 80s to late 80s when I kind of came of age as a gay teenager in the Reagan years, there was obviously just like there is against trans people now a sustained and organized demonization campaign, right? Obviously, the people who were just, you know, closed minded, malicious bigots were not people that you regarded as allies. Those are people you were willing to kind of demonize and scorn. But the reason why that debate ended up being won by advocates of gay equality was because we were constantly searching for ways to engage people and to change their minds and encouraging those questions to be asked based on the recognition that if you want to usher in very profound changes to how society functions and do so in a way that requires a majority to support you, even though the majority is not um, part of the group who's uh, on be on whose behalf you're advocating dialogue and engagement is crucial. And so people who want to engage and ask questions are, are things that you're happy about, not people that you want to denounce. The other thing I find so 
um, kind of baffling and confounding about this taboo on asking in particular whether or not children or teenagers are being uh, misdiagnosed with gender dysphoria for cultural reasons or social reasons or because the 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 understanding of it is so preliminary. Um, aside from the fact that just in general, you want medicine and science and mental health count, uh, professionals always asking whether misdiagnoses are taking place. But there's this kind of morality now, as I know all too well, and as people have been seeing, you know, it's kind of made its appearance in the Alex Morse scandal where there's this now growing uh, orthodoxy among in, in left liberal politics that if you're a young adult, 23, 21, 20, you lack the capacity to make decisions for yourself that are truly consensual about who you want to date, who you want to have sex with. Frequently, people cite neurological research that says your brain isn't fully formed. And that therefore, if someone is 28 or 30, like Alex Morse was, he shouldn't be dating or having sex with 21 or 22-year-olds, even if they say they want to, because 21 and 22-year-olds aren't capable of making a much, a pretty limited choice. Do I want to have sex with this person on this particular night or date them? And yet, those same people who say that 21-year-olds or 20-year-olds aren't capable of deciding for themselves whether to date an older person or whether to have sex with an older person want to put it off limits whether a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old is sufficiently mature and has the emotional sophistication to make permanent life-altering decisions about what their gender is to the point of having surgeries or hormonal treatments that will alter themselves forever. Um, and, you know, I think that um, one of the kind of uh, phenomenon that we're seeing in liberal culture increasingly um, that's reflected in this treatment of Joe Rogan, Rogan as a homophobe, not for saying anything disparaging about trans people or advocating against equal rights. Quite the contrary, he, 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 he doesn't do that. He advocates for full rights. Is the idea that simply asking questions, even in response to things that probably ought to be interrogated, is considered itself almost as bad as malice and bigotry itself they're kind of equated in a way that just will inherently repel people from a political movement that says that if you have questions you have no right to ask them and simply asking them makes you a bad person right and 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 the the i think the uh the tying kind of thread there is that this is again it's it's about this delineation that we have to make between liberal politics and liberal culture and the culture war um, this is very much about a culture that has deprioritized political outcomes, right? Uh, we see that with your example that you just made um, with the gay rights movement. We also saw that with the Alex Morse campaign, right? We saw people who were much more focused on maintaining the integrity and the purity of the battle they're engaged in culturally, even at the expense of achieving real political outcomes, right? And as you just said, you know, engaging debates is is how you actually, you know, having that cross pollination of ideas and and actually persuading people, actually engaging in persuasion, 
um, rather than just kind of identifying who's on in my tribe, who's in your tribe. That's how you achieve political outcomes. It was the same with the Alex Morse, right, where it was an allegation was made and we immediately have to believe the allegation, not investigate it, because if you are a you know, if you're a denier or if you even hesitate to believe what's happening, then you are not promoting this broader idea that there are victims in the world and we're not kind of invest further investing in the idea of victimization, right? Um, victimization is this really core concept to this culture war, right? Like we have to believe that there are victims and we have to always support the creation of new categories of victimhood. And if we don't, and if we're not engaged in that struggle, then we're not pushing the culture war. And again, it just shows that maintaining the integrity of this culture war is far more important than even the political outcomes. And I think there may be some very tangible reasons for that. I think a lot of the people that are engaged in this stuff are people who do derive power from cult power, powerful cultural centers, right? They work in academia, they work in the media, and that's how they exert their power over politics and over society. Because again, culture is how we talk about ideas. Culture is how we mold political ideas and say which ideas can connect together, which people can connect together, who can hang out with who, how, how you know, culture builds coalitions, right? Um, it builds political coalitions. So um, I think there's a very real reason why people are very concerned about maintaining the integrity of this liberal culture. Um, it's because that's where they derive their power. And in fact, you know, there, I mean, it's not a surprise to see, especially now, seeing cultural elites feel so disempowered democratically, right? They feel so politically disempowered um, that they would kind of throw themselves completely into this culture war because that's the only place where they can exert their power now, right? And that's why we see these insane sorts of um, um, kind of uh, concessions to even corporate culture where they're so excited to allow corporations to censor free speech. They're so excited to allow HR departments to, you know, indoctrinate people and run programs on people and force people in these programs where the people are literally denouncing themselves because of the way they're born. It's exerting power through culture because you can't do it politically anymore. Politically, it's a lot harder. You have to get the people on your side. Why would you want to get the people on your side? That's a pain yeah. in the ass. So, so right? yeah, exactly. Um, so, and, and I do think it's interesting as well that that this whole concept of whether you care about power or not because you know i watched i mentioned martina navratilova earlier who um you know is obviously a person who i pay attention to i've talked about before and written about before how she was my childhood hero i was working on a film about her and it was amazing to watch that this person who is like one of the main 20th century pioneers of feminism she did as much to create space for the ability of female athletes to compete on equal terms with male athletes in terms of money and sponsorships and corporations is probably anybody except for Billie Jean King. She had a trans coach in 1983 and was defending not just LGBTs and was one of the few openly gay celebrities or athletes of that era. You know, all she kind of did was say, hey, I'm kind of confused. Is all you is the only thing you have to do to enter female professional sports and win all the cash awards and, and prizes and trophies is declare yourself a woman or are there protocols? She was really asking earnestly. And in response, she was just mauled 
um, with no generosity, no kind of, you know, uh, consideration for her, her whole history. She was just instantly declared a bigot. The more she tried to defend herself, the worse it got. And then eventually, very soon thereafter, she converted into a real enemy. She emerged two months later and wrote this article aggressively condemning the idea that trans women should be able to compete in female athletic in female uh, athletics because it the 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 kind of intolerance for her even asking converted her it alienated her it converted her into an enemy and it seems like people who don't care about outcomes or about winning really don't get bothered by that but let me just ask you about one the kind of the the last um kind of prong of the case of the liberal case against Joe Rogan. I find this one really interesting too, which is, you know, people say, okay, fine. He, he liked Bernie. He liked Tulsi. Um, and yet I believe in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, he said that he was voting for Trump over Hillary. And I'm certain that after saying that he thought Bernie was the best candidate and really liked Tulsi, He's now saying, I can't vote for Biden. I probably would vote for Trump over Biden, which would is leading liberals to say to people like you, why would we possibly why should we possibly regard somebody as an ally who is saying twice now that they're going to vote for Donald Trump? And I guess like an ancillary part of that question is, you know, there is this phenomenon of people who twice voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Not a small number, a large number. And here in Brazil, same thing. You know, a lot of people who voted for Bolsonaro in 2018 were people who voted for the Workers' Party for consecutive elections. So if you're kind of a political junkie who relies on the polarization of choose between Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity, it doesn't make any sense that somebody could do that to say, I like Bernie but I'm going to vote for Trump because you have to pick an ideological box. And Joe Rogan clearly is a person who doesn't think that way. And I think there's like this liberal sense that that makes him bizarre when in fact, I think it makes him pretty common. It's one of the reasons why people like him because he's not in one of those boxes. But what do you say to liberals who would make that argument that how can we consider somebody supporting this authoritarian racist for president to be an ally? Mm hmm. Well, I mean, there are two things that you, you have to kind of kind of set the record straight on first is that I, th I I'm pretty sure in 2016 he voted for Gary Johnson. So he voted for a libertarian. I don't think he voted for Trump in 2016. Um, and in 2020, again, he first, you know, supported Tulsi. Then he supported Bernie. Um, and then most recently, if you really look at his comments, it's not that he's saying he's endorsing Trump, but he's saying that he would he would vote for Trump. Um, as a result of the party choosing Biden, because he just doesn't think Biden can do the job just from a kind of mental age decline standpoint. So it's not like the most heartfelt support of Trump. But yeah, I mean, let's set that aside and just say, OK, like he's willing to vote for Trump. Right. Um, I mean, the idea that you wouldn't want to engage someone who is willing to go from the most liberal, the most left candidate in the Democratic primary and willing to then switch over to Trump. I mean, you know, it's the argument that the left's been making for, you know, for years now, right? That like these, this is the, is the guy to be studying, right? He's the one that we can kind of crack the code on. 
Um, as for, you know, why that's the case, I think it's real. Again, it's really threatening. I don't think, you know, I think the Democratic establishment, what I tend to tell people is that the Democratic establishment, their main priority is not really to actually even win elections. It's to keep control of the Democratic Party. Right. Like that's where most of their power comes from. It's certainly where their most reliable source of power comes from. It's keeping control of the party, because as long as you keep control of the party and you keep control of the cultural um, levers of power in the country, um, you're always going to be able to command 50 percent of the political system. You're always going to be able to command, um, you know, the entire media apparatus that's devoted to politics. Right. You're going to or at least half of it. Right. You're going to control the liberal half. And so I think it's I, I mean, I, it's I'm sorry to say, but I think it's a really cynical calculation that cultural elites and democratic party elites are making when they make these decisions because when when you engage Joe Rogan and you engage his viewers you're being, bringing in a ton of people who you can't necessarily rely on to keep these clean lines of political and cultural engagement you're you're completely blowing up the political system you're you're blowing up the racket right and why would you want to do that because at the end of the day Hell, Trump could get reelected and they'd still control the party. They'd still control the other half. They'd be raising hundreds of millions of dollars at, for their think tanks and there for, you know, the media institutions. And so it's a great racket. Why would you risk that just for winning, you know, the presidency for maybe four years, eight years? Don't get me wrong. Obviously, they'd like to win that, too. But I don't think that's the real game. I don't think that's ever been the real game. That's yeah, not what saw, sustains we saw careers. That in the, we saw that in the UK, right, where the centrist and Blairites and moderates who controlled the Labour Party levers of power forever, whether they were in power or out of power, when they lost control of their own party to Jeremy Corbyn, they it was very obvious if you're just paying minimal attention, but we now know from documents that have been leaked and reports that have been issued, that they were actively working against the Labour Party. They preferred to destroy Corbyn and retake control of the party even if it meant empowering the Tories and making Boris Johnson prime minister, because as you say, their pr top priority is ensuring that they maintain control of their party and secondary or even more distantly is actually winning elections. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, it's like when people ask me why I go on Tucker Carlson, I can barely even understand the question because it's such an obvious answer, which is because there are 4 million people watching. And whatever percentage it is that I can reach in any way, not necessarily change their minds instantly, but just kind of make them a little more open to hearing from different people, maybe get them kind of unsettled about who they should be paying attention to or introducing some ideas that maybe maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 15%. Why would I ignore that if I actually care about outcomes? To watch, you know, I, I it kind of shocked me. Edward Snowden uh, appeared on Rogan's show for the second time this week. And so I went back to look at what the audience was the first time he appeared, which is about 10 months ago. And even though Edward Snowden being Edward Snowden kind of spoke in like a monologue form for about three hours, you know, and he was obviously remote because he couldn't go to the studio since he's trapped in Russia. The audience for that appearance from Edward Snowden just on YouTube, never mind all the other platforms was 15 million people, 15 million. Um, which is, you know, four or five times the size of a primetime cable host, even on their best night. 
And obviously, by virtue of the fact that you watch it, that people listen to it and can hear him say, I support Tulsi or I support Bernie. Obviously, there's huge numbers of those that audience that are very reachable from a liberal perspective. Anybody who says, I don't want to have anything to do with a show that reaches 15 million people is somebody to me who's saying, I look at politics as about everything other than winning, wielding power and changing the world. Right, right. And they shroud it in in moral language, right? They shroud it in how could you associate with someone like that? How could you you'll be tainted by someone like that? Um, they shrouded in those things, but at the end of the day, it's a much more cynical calculation. It's it's put forth as some kind of moral declara- declaration, but it's really a cynical calculation calculation in terms of controlling the party and in terms of controlling cultural power centers. Why would we want to upset that? This is a great setup, um, and yeah, that's why you see 15 million people tuning into Edward Snowden because it completely cult, uh, cuts across all of these cultural lines. I mean, there aren't, you know, being interested in Edward Snowden, just his story and what he did and the cultural and political impact he had, that's not a liberal or conservative idea. That's that's reaching millions of people. Um, But that's just not interesting to um, what informs the, you know, the, the careers and the lifestyles of the people that sort of hold these, both the political and cultural levers of power in the country. Yeah. So, yeah. So thanks very much for, for, Taking the time, I think, is a really important topic, not just because it's important to understand the phenomenon of Joe Rogan, although that is important. There are very few people having the kind of cultural and political impact that he's having um, in a reaching a group of people who often tune out politics or who aren't engaged in the traditional ways, which makes him even more important than just the numbers alone. But I do think, too... The reaction to him tells us a lot about how media figures view their position, how liberals view what their political project uh, is. And so um, I, I think your your analysis on Twitter and the discussion that we just had um, has really clarified those issues in, in a really helpful way. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, and I hope people will tune into your back channel YouTube program where you're doing a lot of these kind of heterodox uh, discussions with people across a wide range of ideological and, and cultural uh, belief systems. So thanks very much, Sean. Yeah, thank you so much. I enjoyed it.